From So Say We All and KPBS in San Diego, welcome to Incoming, the series that features true stories from the lives of America's military told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. I'm your host, Justin Hudnall. We're calling today's show Unstuck in Time, after the opening line in Kurt Vonnegut's novel Slaughterhouse-Five. It's one of my favorite descriptions about post-traumatic stress disorder that Vonnegut uses in reference to his main character when he writes, Billy Pilgrim has become unstuck in time. The first time I read the book, I took it literally. The book is couched in a science fiction veneer, after all. But two decades later, after receiving my own diagnosis, I suddenly remembered that line and how perfectly it explained the phenomenon of flashbacks, and I discovered a whole second meaning to it. I bring that up not because any of our guests on the show share that diagnosis necessarily, but because their work has common elements of looking simultaneously backwards and forwards while trying to deal with the present. Those contributors this hour are Benjamin Bush and Sierra Crane, and you're going to hear from Ben first, or Major Bush, as he was known by the end of his 16 years with the Marine Corps. Ben has proven himself to be a Swiss army knife of talents. He's a filmmaker, having written and directed the movie Bright. He's an accomplished photographer, a writer whose memoir Dust to Dust was published by HarperCollins in 2012, and whose essays have appeared in Harper's, New York Times Magazine, and Newsweek, among others. And he's also an actor, best known for playing Officer Anthony Caliccio in The Wire and Major Todd Eckloff in Generation Kill. But before and interspersed with that impressive resume, Ben served 16 years as an infantry and light armor reconnaissance officer, including during the Battle for Ramadi and as a de facto mayor of the Iraqi town of Najit during the occupation. I've also had the privilege of seeing a headshot of Ben taken between deployments where his flowing rock and roll hair blows like that of a stallion's, but you're really going to need to Google it for yourself to fully appreciate it. If you want me to go there, man, this is going to be an interesting interview. Among his many other pursuits nowadays, he's teaching at the MFA program of Sierra Nevada College, where many of the contributors of this show have studied. His work is always both reflective and introspective, and we're very happy to have him on this show. So without further ado, here's Ben. In the spring of 2001, we were rehearsing for wars we no longer expected to happen. Everything we carried was green, and we weren't thinking of deserts yet. We stayed in our bases and made believe, attacking ourselves and then going home, over and over. We drove to drills from suburbs through the back roads of Virginia, paved colonial routes that wound through the countryside. Old farms had been bought by the government to be used as military training ranges, and though the settlements had been removed from maps long ago, a building would sometimes appear adrift in the wilderness. While Marines hunted each other dressed as woodland, I found a farmhouse deep in the trees. It was long forsaken, the road to it filled with oaks, all the children born here gone. The toil to clear this land had been consumed by the soil. Generations trudging behind teams of horses to cut furrows in the orange clay had left no lines. No plow here now, and no sword. But the home stood, its thin tin roof splitting rain over the empty rooms. A farmhouse was as much a fortress as could be built by a family. Seeing one so completely surrendered was a quiet loss of tremendous magnitude. Its open windows, hollow interior, and century of stories drew me inside. The door had been torn away, its rusted hinges still in place, and I stepped in to find a single room. There was a small addition on the right where a kitchen had been, but the stove had been carried off and the floor had fallen in. I went up the tilted stairs as if they were made of loose plates of glass. 
The second story was bleak, its bare plaster peeling from the lath. The roof had leaked, and the floorboards at the top of the stairs were soft with rot. I stayed close to the wall and crept around the damp spot as if it were already a hole. It was like walking on a ledge. There was a small access door to the attic space above the kitchen. It was nailed shut. If an undiscovered relic remained, it would be in there. A mason jar of coins, a photograph, a child's toy, anything. I pried it open with my Leatherman tool, and cool air poured out as if I had broken the seal on a tomb. It took a while to inch my shoulders past the nails in the frame and then slide halfway into the cavity. My belt caught, and my eyes adjusted. A dark shape loomed in the corner, very close, and it seemed to swell in size. It let out a shocking croak and spilled a vile burst of vomit toward me. The odor was stunning, a putrid soup of carrion, and I struggled to back out, stuck halfway through the tiny door, one arm in, one arm out, the vulture hopping awkwardly away toward a gash in the roof, the tip of its wing swiping my face as it passed. The stench was overpowering, and I became careless with desperation to escape, finally ripping myself out of the wall and stumbling backward as if I'd been shot. I stood, gasping curses in the center of the rotten floor I had so carefully avoided on my way in. The boards burst and I fell, my arms stopping me for an instant as if I had plunged through ice on a frozen pond. But the spongy wood gave way and my weight pulled me through. I landed with a thud that seemed to shake the house, moist plaster pouring onto me with the fragments of floor and mouse droppings. I rose slowly, surprised to find myself uninjured, the last man standing, my arms stretched out as if I were balancing on a beam. I waited for the walls to fold in on me, but after a wary pause, I crept outside as if even the sound of my steps might shatter the room. I looked back at the house, the gutted dwelling of the vulture. Seeing this place in its final indignity, I wondered who had been the last one to walk out, close the door, and know that no one would ever return. The house had suffered the terrible moment when no one lived to call it their home. A leak formed in the roof, started as no more than a tear in the sheets of tin, the rain creeping in and beginning to tap on the floor of a bedroom. Insects and fungus following the dark path of the water and rotting through the rooms below. Over time, its shape changed, roof sagging, windows squeezed until the brittle glass split into shards and dropped into the drip line. The room shifted, plaster breaking off and littering the sinking floors. It would stand impossibly like this for a while, then suddenly splinter into the grave of its cellar. It was like a stranded ship that took 50 years to sink. The chimney may stand for several more decades, finally weakened by its solitude, the freeze and thaw lifting its rocks apart, heaping them around the ashen earth like a burial mound. I circled around it one last time and found the rim of a wagon wheel, some broken cork-top bottles, and the single arm of a porcelain doll. It was only three inches long, stained by rusted cans and soil, but it was complete, its five fingers cupped and fused. I wrapped it in a glove and headed back into the war games. Days later, in my own home, I placed the pale arm in a drawer that held worn seashells picked from beaches. They looked like pieces of the same body, a tiny child blown apart. By spring of 2005, I was in Ramadi, Iraq, on my second combat tour. The city was made of concrete and metal. All the homes poured or built with hollow blocks. The floors could not rot, 
but they could be cracked, and the city often shook with car bombs or IEDs, smoke rising out of the neighborhoods full of children. Some homes had been collapsed by the war, all the rooms crushed into a thin pile of fragments and rebar. Our enemies fought us from houses and apartments, holding families hostage or driving them out. They brought violence, and we responded in kind, keeping the city frightened. Our patrols took sporadic fire, and we fought house to house because there was no other choice. We were left to search homes we had searched many times before. The women and children gathered in one room, waiting for us to leave, knowing that the men we sought were already gone. They lived in between all of us. On these streets, gunfire sounded like it came from all directions, so we reacted as if it had, spreading out into every home around us while mobile units circled the perimeter to catch our assailants if they fled. We hoped that if we moved quickly enough, we might trap them in the second story of a house, their fingers still guilty with gunpowder. On one such day, a marine on my patrol was hit by a sniper, and we rushed, passing through a walled courtyard with our eyes in the windows. The front door was unlocked, and we pulled it open, leading the way in with our rifles. I stayed at the bottom of the stairs, aiming up as Marines went from room to room downstairs. The house was empty, but clean, just vacated, already haunted by its family's hurried departure. There was still dry bread on the kitchen counter. A Marine covered me as I went up the stairs, followed by another, both of us watching the doorway at the top, our eyes tight to our rifle sights. Our concentration shrank the space, closed the stairway in, and our steps echoed as if we were mechanical and composed of something harder than flesh. I made entry into the room and was surprised by my own reflection in a mirror. My finger involuntarily tightened on my trigger as I saw what I would look like to anyone else. I had never seen myself this way. I swept the room, stopping on a plastic doll's head, its blue fractured eyes looking back at me. The eyes were the color and the head the size of the baby girl I had left at home, my daughter, born just months before I deployed. An Iraqi child had worn much of the hair off the doll with affection, then suddenly left it behind, perhaps one possession too many to carry. The room was empty, a few brass shell casings on the floor, wardrobes left open, the house quickly abandoned by a family escaping with nowhere to go but somewhere else in the war. I was the danger as much as anyone else. I took a photograph of the doll and went back out to the street. I patrolled past the house for months afterward, entering to clear it again from time to time after the sound of gunfire. The doll's head remained in the child's empty room, the last of the family that never returned. By the end of the year, I was gone too. When I arrived home, I looked at my house, door locked, glass in its windows, its rooms filled with our lives and our history and objects, the porcelain arm still in a drawer. But the monument of home had changed, its impermanence now imaginable, our disappearance inevitable, forests and invasion no longer as distant as I had believed. I wonder who will find our ruins and why the last of us will have left it to fall. I wonder where the war will move. Benjamin Bush, thanks so much for joining us on Incoming. Why don't we start off with you telling us a little bit about what you're working on right now? Well, I think I'm, I'm fairly close to a complete collection of poetry. 
which um, is something that I, I kind of feel is my most vulnerable art in that I'm, uh, I never have a real pure sense of confidence about a poem being perfect. So that's, that's going to interest me. I, I'm, I'm, in, you know, I'm excited about it, but also I'm still working on it. Some of these poems I've been working on for eight years Mm-hmm. It's the same poem, <laughs> you know, uh, I keep moving the commas and changing a word and it's either because I get better, I read more work that makes me, makes me write and think better, or I was never right. And, <laughs> and that worries me about everything else I think I'm finished with, you know? So I have the sense that I understand how to use prose. And when I write a sentence, I have a certain confidence in its structure and strength with poetry, free verse, I'm always unbalanced. And I'm never sure, you know, I'm never actually certain that uh, the structure that I'm using, that I'm standing on, isn't loose. I'm always kind of questioning a poem that I've made. Sometimes poems that I, I was absolutely certain I'd completed, I look at later and I'm dumbfounded as to who snuck in and wrote it. <laughs> You know, there's, is, that in a, is that in a good way or a bad way? <laughs> both, both, absolutely. Sometimes I'm surprised that uh, that something is so good, and and more often than not, I can't believe the number of uh, of mistakes that anyone would sh- should notice. Just it just baffles me. I, I it's it's magic. I think poetry has something going on that I can't do with prose. Although I sneak a little bit of lyric into into prose when I get a chance. It's interesting that you use that analogy about somebody sneaking in and, and kind of doing your writing for you in the night when you when you go back and revisit it. And because you've had more than the average bear's amount of options interpreting the war. You're a photographer. You revisited the invasion as an actor. You've written about it magazines and journals and your own memoir. I got to thinking about this when I was going over your, your, your bio and your credits, and I was wondering, what is the difference when you're creating or attacking this imagery between metabolizing your own experiences and or do you feel dissociated from it in that process and and I ask because of that analogy of somebody sneaking in and writing your poems for you I think you know sometimes language arrives very organically intuitively accidentally and you have to be there at the right moment for it to to reveal itself and some nights are like that some nights in the latest hour something great happens and it's almost not your fault you know mm-hmm. And, and the next day, because of its surprising qualities, you kind of don't believe you did it. So I, I think that's kind of interesting. And, and I do work in many genres. I go back and forth all the time because not, no one genre satisfies everything I'm trying to do. Uh, because I'm such a visual artist, I mean, I came out of, you know, my background was I came out of Vassar College as a studio art major. I was a, a drawer, a printmaker, a sculptor. So I... I perceive the world by imagery before language. And that's why most of my work is so rooted in a sense of place. I try to get the the room right first, and then the population inside it. And I do that with film as well, with photography. You know, it's all about evidence. Sometimes I think an image says everything I want it to do. You know, the writer works alone, and the reader works alone. And though they labor over the same words... You know, they each see with what they know, and then they dream the rest. There's magic in that transference. I didn't know language could truly do that, even though my father was a writer, until I had to give experience 
a way to speak. I had never had to explore my own experiences before. I was making things up. It wasn't really until the war. I saw things I couldn't give to anyone else without language. There weren't photographs for it. There weren't videos for it. And there was just me as a witness to my own vision. That's when I reverted to language. You know, I, had, I could write one letter home a month. That's the first time I really honestly ever used prose out of absolutely no other option. And it changed everything. I guess in some way it made me a writer then for the first time. Not that I had ever not respected writing or language. I just thought that my strength was in images and that I could explain anything I wanted. I could express anything I wanted in the crafting or capturing of imagery. And I was wrong. <laughs> um, there, were, there were things I really couldn't do. And... I've, I've come to really enjoy what happens between a reader and what I've written. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you'd landed some serious roles. You were already on The Wire before you deployed. Is that correct? My first season on The Wire was in between, in between deployments. my deployments. Yeah, I'd just come back. I was growing my hair out. I thought I was done again with the Marine Corps. I'd had to disguise an awful lot of frustration in Iraq, obviously. Uh, it was a mess, and, and responsibilities were just very heavy. I think a lot of great actors are in the military <laughs> just to do the jobs that they have, to disguise a certain portion of themselves and still perform the duties that are required of them. In my case, there was so many different people I had to be. I had to sort of be one officer to my Marines, and to the Iraqis, I, I had to be something similar. But with far more nuance. I was very careful in what I said because I knew how powerful language was. I knew that the wrong word, the wrong attitude would destroy something valuable between people. And so I tried to listen more than speak. And I did really work on my face um, <laughs> to control my feelings because many times I was just incensed by things. You know, cultural differences are, are what they are. And, you know, as I, I wrote in letters home, you know, I never expected Iraqis to be American because they're not. And so I'm already wrong in making assumptions about anything that they consider to be common sensibility. But I was really trying to get some things done for them. And under the yoke of what was also a completely different mission, you know, security and stabilization. And we were kind of given this list. It was a bizarre list of things that we're required to do with absolutely no plan for how to accomplish them. How do you create democracy? If you look at our current election, <laughs> you might not think we're the best example. <laughs> if you know, how do you stabilize an economy? How do you restore critical infrastructure, which was already not great in the first place and was now entirely our responsibility? How do you do these things while at the same time you're running a military unit that has its own idiosyncrasies? and its own particularities. So within even that time frame, I sort of had to wear two personalities. And then to come back to the US, uh, to head back into acting, and the first thing I get is a guy who has all his emotions completely undisguised, you know, Officer Calicio on the wire, mm -hmm. is intolerant of anything out of sync with kind of a black and white template of justice. Calicio was in my head in Iraq, <laughs> and I couldn't let him out. So there's a lot of that, which kind of feeds into the things you do later on. That was just a lucky marriage of, uh, of what David Simon and Ed Burns were doing with The Wire, was they needed kind of one person to represent that, that personality type. And of course, it's kind of become symbolic of, of our current policing discussion. Right. It's very apt right when, now. 
Yeah, very strangely enough, and I end up being uh, <laughs> the strange representative, and I'm a sensitive guy. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, how was it adding you know, father and husband to those roles you were playing at the same time? That was what changed a lot of things for me because you know my book, Dust to Dust, was born after my second tour four years later, but it happened within three months of returning home because I, I left my daughter, who was just born, and I returned exactly on her first birthday. She was one year old, which is kind of amazing. And I, you know, I left my wedding ring at home. I cut myself off from a life outside of the war, almost in a, in a way I thought that if I, if I was separate entirely, that the war couldn't hurt them. It couldn't go home and reach them. You know, so I, I left all the symbols of my fatherhood and, and parenthood. I didn't, I didn't show anyone photographs of my children. I didn't wear a wedding ring. And in that severance, uh, damage was done because of, you know, re-entry. When I came home, no one else had severed that tie. They were waiting for everything to recur, as if this was a gap in relationships and things like that. And there was this, this beautiful little baby, and uh, she didn't know who I was. And there's something terribly wrong with that, you know, that separation does that to, to families everywhere. And so I, I had to kind of become a father that day and then kind of reacquaint myself with being a husband as well. And all this happened, you know, as we moved towards the holidays. And immediately after that, my father died of a heart attack and followed by my mother within a year. And I just, you know, it was a concentration of death that you expect in war to a certain extent and you don't expect at home. And the two of them overlapped. They kind of combined in, in the same intellectual and emotional period. So I became an orphan and a father almost within the same period. And that's what bored the book out. That's, that's where I really had to use language because uh, the witnesses were dead. The only people who, who knew about my childhood really were gone. I did what, what the child does. You know, the, the child searches for their parent. It's a natural inclination. And in looking for them, going, you know, what I had was memory. I realized the power of memory, corrupt as it is, to bring people back. You know, photography, we've always kind of relied on that. You know, here's the evidence that people were here. And you look at that photograph, and it re-imprints upon you the existence of people. And you need that because without them, people begin to fade. That's the sad, the sad truth of people you love, is even remembering them as hard as you can, their face begins to blur their laugh begins to diminish. And so I was going through all of that at once. During my first tour, I'd convinced myself that I was invulnerable. I was not careless, but I was unafraid in part because fearlessness was required of me. My Marines assumed that an acceptance of risk was ordinary. We became accustomed to our endangerment. When we took our first casualty, we were at a loss to completely believe it went right back into our ritual of patrols as if nothing had happened. While I was deployed, my family worried, all of them keeping their worry from me as much as they could. My second tour was different. I expected to be killed in Ramadi. After I was wounded, it was far worse for my wife and parents, the mystery of my situation expanding my peril in their imaginations, my vulnerability exposed. But the belief in immortality and the certainty of doom produced almost the same lack of anxiety in me. On June 16, 2005, I accompanied a captain who had become a friend during the deployment. 
While we patrolled through a fishing village south of the city of Ramadi, we found it almost empty again. The streets vacant, men gone, dogs quiet. To take the edge off, the captain and I exchanged lines from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. One of us would begin, You were in great peril. I don't think I was. Yes, you were. You were in terrible peril. Look, let me go back and face the peril. Oh, no. It's too perilous. We boarded vehicles and went back across the abandoned railroad tracks, relieved to finally be heading back to base after so much sweating. Mortars came in, and an IED erupted ahead of us on the road with no effect. Enough trouble, though, to steer us onto another road. The convoy changed direction, turning east on a dirt path through a jumble of houses. The enemy picked the first vehicle in the convoy, detonating several artillery rounds daisy-chained together around a fuel tank. The blast was so powerful that it blew the up-armored vehicle off the ground. The road ahead went black with smoke, and the company frequency went silent for a moment. The captain was dead, and his gunner, missing, crushed beneath the burning vehicle. I would spend the night protecting my friend's smoldering wreckage while we waited for a recovery vehicle to come. The purity of service had been corrupted by the moral ambiguity of political language. Language had been the first casualty of the war. It was not the dirt or the smoke or the smell or the blood. My days were not condemned by the things I'd expected. It was the pointlessness and the faces of people who were left to live in the violence we had brought with us were drawn to us. Our bullets had gone out into other people's lives. We gathered our wreckage and our dead and someone who lived there filled in the holes in the road made by the bombs left for us. For 215 days, we threw ourselves at the city and washed back into Hurricane Point. At headquarters, 100 meters away, other Marines read our reports and the Euphrates passed between without noticing any of us. In an essay for Harper's, finished while I was still in Iraq, my father wrote, we do not talk about what could happen to Ben. We cannot. We are in our mid-sixties, and every day is precious to us. But we have talked away a chunk of the year of our lives by ticking off each day of his second tour as one more that hastens him home. Perhaps we feel that by slicing another day off our lives, as we wish it away to bring him home, we are spending our lives to buy his. I returned at the end of September on the day of my daughter's first birthday. She hid behind my wife's legs and sneaked smiles at me. I guess that she had no idea who I was. I almost forgot why she wouldn't. I had known fathers who were never coming back to their children. I cleaned my rifle and pistol one last time, again, and turned them into the armory. I can be perfectly at peace on the shore of a beach somewhere and the war will arrive again and then go away. It isn't a crushing thing in my mind, but I can't say that it's, uh, it's ever something I will get over, <laughs> you know. Or if you even will want just... to, if that's even the goal, right? Yeah, well, you know, I don't believe in purging the bad from my life. I need it. It makes everything else have a reference point, 
which just sounds strange. I don't believe in purging away pieces of me to be healthy, to be, uh, to be somebody else. I act because I'm not a big fan of myself, and I love to explore who we are by sneaking into someone else's head. I get to not be me, even though, yes, I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm always still in there. I'm always still interpreting pieces of myself and then lying about the rest. There's savagery in war. I mean, you'll never probably, in most lives, have something so dramatic to deal with. It's this surreality. You know, you go away to a place. We don't stay here for the war. You know, in America, we've been lucky in that, uh, you know, since 1865, and a little bit in the late 1800s, we've been able to leave for our wars. They become a distant thing, which is, it's a neverland of sorts, you know? It seems like it's fictional to everyone else because they don't have to worry about bombs in their streets like some people do in the world. So their perception of reality is incredibly different from ours. And because of that, we talk about the, you know, the civilian military divide, and I don't want to accentuate that discussion any further, but that is a big difference. Everyone who deployed overseas and saw some action or another went to a, a, you know, a different world. It kind of lives in your head that way because that world is not here. You know, I've walked through deserts here in America, various other places. It's not Iraq, but I sense Iraq there. What, you know? yeah, what, uh, on that note, like what, and this is a question I ask everybody on the, on the show, and I'm interested to get to your take, but if you were to come up to a young man or woman about to leave the Corps now, rotate out in a couple of weeks, what advice would you give them if you could give them one piece? Well, I mean, it's so different for, for every single person. You know, do they have a family? Are they, are they young? Are they older? What did they do in the war? Which is, you know, varies tremendously. It's a hard question to answer. I think as with all experiences, the only way to truly understand what they are is to give them time. You know, I kind of went after mine fairly early, but I was kind of switched on about my experience. I've always kind of, you know, been very tight with my environment. And so I was taking a lot of things in. And people ask, well, are you going to do another memoir someday? And I, I don't think that I will, but I'm going to see the world again differently at 60 and 70, you know. You begin to pick up more and more debris as you pass through pass through your life. But that's a hard question, you know. What It, it really would have to come down to, to who I'm talking to. It's almost not worth What do you wish somebody had said to answering. you when you came out this last time? I don't know. I didn't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I didn't I didn't want to be thanked. I didn't want to tell any stories in particular. That came out really when I lost my my parents. It was about profound loss that just brought a lot of other things into context. You know, we're we're all going to lose the people we love. That's the thing we create fictions for to survive the 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 truth of that. How do you depart from the inevitable? You, know, you create heavens. You know, look what religion has done. Every religion, death takes you to a better place, right? So I think we all do that just on a personal level as well. We, we don't think about our mortality. And I've always been kind of tracking my mortality. I've always believed I don't have enough time. I worry about it now more than ever <laughs> as, I, as I progress in my days. <laughs> And um, the fiction I have to kind of give myself 
is that the time I spent doing these other things wasn't wasted, you know? And you look at Iraq now, and you look at the arguments for and against, and they're pretty much all against uh, us even having been there. You know, that's, that's two years that, uh, that I wasn't making art, that I wasn't with my family, that I wasn't working the land and working the house and, you know, uh, and doing the things that we all kind of consider accomplishments in our lives. Right. However, look how much art the war made afterward. Look how much of a larger discussion I've had because of my experience in it. What would I have been missing if I hadn't been there as the artist I am? Benjamin Bush, thanks so much for being on Incoming. Justin, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey there, friends. Dewey Bratcher here, a veteran of the U.S. Navy and host of Permission to Speak Freely, a web video series we produced with KPBS and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's Veterans Coming Home Initiative. A group of contributors from Incoming got together with Justin and the folks at KPBS and decided to tackle some of the biggest misconceptions veterans face after returning to the civilian world with some humor and wit and a little bit of sass. If you enjoy Incoming, we think you'll be glad to see Permission to Speak Freely, too. And you can check it out online at kpbs.veteranscominghome.org. That's kpbs.veteranscominghome.org. We think you'll be glad you did, and hopefully you'll want to share it. Hey, thanks for supporting your friendly neighborhood veteran artist. I'm Dewey, and I'm out. Welcome back to Incoming and today's episode, Unstuck in Time. We're going to hear next from our second contributor this hour, Sierra Crane. She was born and raised in rural Pennsylvania, homeschooled by her mother, and taught life lessons by her father. She joined the Army National Guard on her 17th birthday, ready to get out and experience the world. She served two tours in Iraq before her eight years were up, discovered the Army wasn't all that she wanted, and came home to realize that she never really gave much thought to what she wanted to do with the rest of her life if it wasn't in the military. Writing was a great way to escape those feelings, though, of loss and regret after her enlistment was up. And now, back in her hometown, she's serving in a different way, as a police officer, and thinks she's finally found where she belongs. Today she reads Coming Home, her story dealing with looking back at her service while trying to look forwards to a new life. Here's Sierra. Hi, my name is Sierra Crane. I'm a veteran of the Pennsylvania Army National Guard. I served from the years 2003 to 2011 and did two tours of duty in Iraq. I'll be reading my story, Coming Home, focusing on my transition after coming home from my first deployment in 2006. It didn't start right away. For the first couple weeks I was home, I was just happy. I couldn't stop smiling. My sister and I were attached at the hip. Everywhere we went, we went together, and all I could think about was how amazing it was to be home. Finally home. It was, after all, the first time I'd been able to relax in over two years. So why shouldn't I have been happy? I had enlisted in the Army National Guard in July of 2003 on my 17th birthday. I was so excited and I was so proud to be serving my country and doing great things to help the American people. I went to basic training a year later. As soon as I stepped off the plane into the hot, humid air of South Carolina, I feared I'd made the biggest mistake of my life. But I figured that was how everyone felt their first day of basic training. 
At least that's what I'd been told. That's what everyone else seemed to think. So I tried to brush it off. I tried to focus on my training instead of the giant hole in my chest from missing my family so much. But it didn't get easier after graduation. At my advanced job training, the rumors started. My unit was getting deployed, or they weren't. Iraq, Afghanistan, staying home, nobody really knew the answer. Finally, I called my sergeant back home two weeks before my graduation, and I asked him. Yes, they're going, he told me. You're going. Less than three months later, March of 2005, I left home and began my first deployment. To say it was all bad would be a bold-faced lie. To even imply that I had it anywhere near as hard as some veterans would be an insult to them and the sacrifices that they made. So many times I've wondered how I could feel the way I did. What right did I have when I came home without losing a limb or family member or something obviously life-changing? I'd been home for two or three weeks when I first realized that I wasn't the same. I heard my ex-boyfriend call my mom a bitch and I turned around and I punched him. Would I do it again? Yeah, probably. But I never would have done it before. And I was so angry all the time. And it didn't matter if it was a big problem or a really little silly one. Something as simple as going to plug in my laptop and finding a neatly folded pile of clothes in the way. What kind of person would take those clothes and hurl them across the room because they were so angry? I was that kind of person. I would walk through the room and my mom and my sister would brace themselves, waiting to see if something else would set me off. Something so tiny they wouldn't even realize it was there until I was yelling and storming out of the room. They didn't know what was wrong, and neither did I, so they didn't know it wasn't their fault. I would cry alone at night, wanting so badly to be happy and not understanding why I wasn't. I loved my family more than ever because I finally understood what it was like to not have them by my side. But no matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't be normal again. I couldn't drive down the street and not worry when I saw the cardboard box on the side of the road and think it was a bomb. I couldn't watch a movie on the 4th of July and not want to curl up in a ball when the fireworks went off outside. Eventually, I just wished that I could go back. I would have given anything to be given a new set of orders, sending me back to Iraq. Life was simple there. You know, someone shoots at you and you shoot back. A mortar comes in and you brace yourself. You view everyone as the enemy, just in case. I'd been home for six months when I finally came to terms with it all. It was Christmas night, and I don't remember exactly what happened, but I'd been upstairs with my sister and I said something awful to her, and I knew she was angry and confused, but I was never very good at apologies. So I just went to bed when she did, but I didn't sleep. Soon I went downstairs and I was pacing back and forth in the living room, trying to stifle the sobs so no one would hear me. But, of course, my mom did. She came downstairs and I fell to the floor and we just sat there. I was crying so hard I couldn't breathe and to this day, almost 10 years later, I still don't know why. I don't know why Iraq changed me so much. And I don't know why I was so angry all the time. That really isn't the typical reaction you think of when you hear the term PTSD. But you also probably don't think of a 19-year-old girl sitting in the turret with a 50 cal machine gun in front of her and then just a year later, crying in her mother's arms in her parents' living room. But that was me, and that was who I'd never wanted to be.
So Sierra Crane, thanks so much for joining us on Incoming. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start off with where you were in life that motivated you to join the National Guard? I guess it started when I was really young, so young I don't even really remember what brought it about. But for as long as I can remember, I wanted to join the Army when I grew up. I was actually so anxious to do it that I called my recruiter when I was still 16 and I wanted him to come over and talk to me and you know tell me what it was going to be like. And He said, call me back when you turn 17 because there's nothing I can do for you right now. You're too young. But I don't know really where it came from other than just I like the idea of the National Guard because we had some natural disasters in my area when I was growing up, some tornadoes, and I could see how it would be nice to be able to help out the community I grew up in by being in the Guard. How did you settle on your MOS as a weapons mechanic when you joined? I grew up in a really rural area of Pennsylvania, and my dad taught me how to shoot guns from a very young age. So I always kind of had a liking for guns and shooting and just playing with weapons of any kind, really. So when I did get the chance to talk to the recruiter and he told me that it was possible for me to be a weapons mechanic, I settled on that right away. I was like, I want to work on guns. That sounds fun. You joined after September 11th, is that right? Yep. I actually um, enlisted in July of 2003, so it was only a few months after uh, the shock and awe in Iraq. So we were kind of in the middle of everything when I joined. And so you were really young when, relative to me at least, (laughs) when that rolled around. What did that do for you in terms of your ambition of joining the military? You mean September 11th? Yeah, especially as a 15-year-old, I think. Yeah, yeah, I just turned 15. Um. I don't think I really understood it that well. Like I didn't I didn't really give much thought to it at the time about someday going to the Middle East. At least not when 9/11 first happened. When I actually joined the army and we were in Iraq at that point, it was something that was really heavy on my mind, but I didn't really worry about it. I kind of wanted to go when I first joined. Like I wanted to get the chance to go overseas and you know, do what I could. And once you were overseas, as you mentioned, you did multiple deployments over several years. What was the most affecting thing about coming from a rural Pennsylvanian upbringing into Babylon, for lack of a better word? It was a huge, even just going to basic training was a really big shock for me because I'd never really been away from home for longer than, I don't know, one or two nights. And then suddenly I went to basic training. My training was a total of six months. And then almost right away after graduation, it was just a couple months. I went on my deployment and that was 15 months long. So it turned out to be like two years away from home after never being away from home for more than two days. Hmm. And uh, I think just being around so many different kinds of people at first was the biggest thing that was difficult to get used to because I was just used to the same kind of people in my area that I'd known my entire life. And I'd never really been in any kind of danger or anything growing up. So I guess that was kind of a strange adjustment. But honestly, when I was in Iraq, That wasn't really something that I focused on that much. It was later when I got home that I was like, holy crap, I could have been shot. (laughs) Right. You mentioned when we spoke earlier that you'd been writing almost all of your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, with a name like Sierra Crane, it's kind of a crime if you don't. (laughs) Well, thanks, I think. (laughs) So many writers get gypped, but not you. How did did writing and, and telling stories factor into your experience with coping with all the adjustments before, during, and after your deployments? Well, the story that I actually just got done reading was something that I wrote after I got home from my second deployment. And initially, when I first got home from the first deployment and I was going through all those issues, I really didn't talk to anyone about it other than 
my mom a little bit, but I didn't even really talk to any of the other veterans that I'd been deployed with about it. So I just kept it quiet for quite a few years. And then finally I felt like I was ready to let this out. And so I kind of wrote that down and I actually put it on Facebook at the time for, uh, you know, just my close friends to read and everything. And they were really shocked to see that I'd been through something like that. I don't think any of them really had any idea. And then it kind of occurred to me after that, that really more people need to be aware that veterans can go through something like that and then they might not even realize what they're going through. I think it helped me a lot to come to terms with what I'd been through and the way I acted. Just being able to put it on paper and see people accept it and not think any less of me for it. What was the thing that you felt that was the hardest for your friends and family to understand about what had changed once you got home? Or for you, when you realized something had changed? Well, for my friends and family, I think it was just strange to see me act so, not physically violent, but just emotionally violent, sort of like yelling and screaming for no reason whatsoever, because I'd never really been like that before. I was a pretty happy teenager. Like, I I was a pretty good teenager, really. Like, I didn't really cause any problems with my parents or anything, so I think it was really weird for them to see me just acting so different and out of control. And for me, it was weird, because at the time, I didn't even really think of it as PTSD or anything like that. I was just like, why am I feeling like this anymore, you know? I should be happy to be home, because for the past two years, all I've wanted to do was go home. And now I'm just miserable all the time. And I just, I didn't get it. Like, I didn't know why I was feeling like that or if it was normal to feel like that or if it was just something that, you know, was wrong in me. I have to ask because I found from doing this show that female service members have a different experience than their male counterparts just by nature of their gender. Part of that factoring into the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress and, and the coping, did you feel that as a woman you had to be more on guard than your male counterparts, potentially in terms of hiding stress and combat fatigue? Maybe a little, just because I think if a woman shows that she has PTSD or she's really struggling with being overseas, that's it's not only a sign of weakness on herself, but it can be a sign of weakness on women in general, you know? Um, Right. I'm reminded of a term a friend introduced me to of the unwilling representative. You know, you, you become the unwilling representative for all female service members. Exactly. Like everything I do kind of represents all women in the military because not many people know any women in the military. So if they meet me and they're like, oh, she was in the army and she's like this. So that's just kind of how they base their opinion then. So it's like, well, if she came home from Iraq and she was all messed up because of it, that must mean that women can't handle it. Like, they shouldn't be overseas because she obviously shouldn't have been. You mentioned in your story that you spent a considerable amount of time when you first got home figuring out what you wanted and you defaulted to the idea that maybe you wanted to go back, mm-hmm. which I think is a very common experience for returning service members of wanting to go back what they knew, even as, like you say, while you're deployed, you just want to come home. Yeah. What was the factor once you were home and wrestling with that that helped you ease into a new life as a civilian again? After the first deployment, I don't think I ever really settled into normal life again. I got home in June of 2006, and like I said, the first six months or so, I was really struggling with, you know, all those anger issues and problems that I had. 
And then for pretty much like all of 2007, I was kind of a bum, really. Like I really didn't do anything. I went to drill and I went to annual training and stuff. <laughs> but I never really settled into my new civilian life. And then the next year I got deployed again. So then I was I got the chance to go back to Iraq and I came home from that and I adjusted much better than I did the first time. I didn't have the same issues. And I'd been home for about a year and I thought, well, I don't want to be in the army anymore. I don't want to go back to Iraq or Afghanistan. So I wasn't going to re-enlist. But I also knew that I really couldn't picture myself having an office job or anything like that. I still kind of wanted a little action, a little excitement maybe. So I went to the police academy and I became a police officer. And that, I think, also helped me a lot to feel like I was still contributing something even if I wasn't in the army anymore. We've had a couple contributors on this show who have transitioned from the military into law enforcement. And mm -hmm. I always like to ask what you feel like the strengths and the perils of that transition are in potential candidates. I mean, I could see how it could be an issue because here, as a police officer, I'm supposed to be serving the people that are living in the area that I'm working in. You know, I'm, I'm basically working for them. So I can't look at everyone like I would look at the people of Iraq when I was over there, like suspiciously just worrying about protecting myself and protecting the other guys. I have to worry more about protecting the people that are living in the area I'm working in. So I could see how it could be a problem if a, uh, a former service member became a police officer and they might be a little too harsh on people. And, uh, you know, it's not a war zone over here. You know, we're in the United States now. You can't treat it like in Iraq. So you can't treat people the same way as you would when you were at war. You're not at war with people. You're supposed to be protecting them. But on the other hand, I think it has helped me a lot because I have a little bit of experience, not really with uh, direct combat, but at least with high stress situations and I can, uh, I know how to deal with them a little bit better than I did years ago. So now I can kind of come home after a really hard day and cope with it a little bit better than some people might if they'd never been in a situation like that before and they were suddenly police officers. You never sought official treatment while you were in the military for post-traumatic stress or any other similar? No, I didn't. After the first deployment, I didn't even really think of it as post-traumatic stress. So I never really thought that I should go and talk to anyone about it. My mom actually talked to one of the sergeants in my unit about it because she was so worried about me. And he told her, yeah, it's it's something a lot of people go through and, you know, she should probably go talk to someone about it. But I never did. And I don't really know why, but I never did. And then eventually I just started to feel better. Would you consider that now more or would you see it as a greater risk now that you have a new career in law enforcement if you ever were to feel that impulse to seek treatment? You know, sometimes I still feel the same feelings, like coming back on a much smaller level, especially if it's been a particularly stressful time at work. I can feel myself like getting frustrated and angry over really small things. And I kind of have to rein that in and think to myself, no, calm down. It's not that big of a deal. And I've thought about it before, like maybe eventually I should go talk to someone about it and just see, you know, if that helps me come up with even better coping mechanisms. But I can see how it would be something that I might hesitate over because if I get diagnosed with PTSD now, working as a police officer, 
what's that going to look like to not only the other police officers in the area, but the people who are living in the area I'm working in to say, this cop has PTSD. Is she going to snap on us? You know, is she going to do something because she has like a mental breakdown or something? So it would be difficult to acknowledge that problem and not feel like it's saying something about me as a cop. Right, which is kind of, you know, a catch-22 because it doesn't mean that there aren't people out there without the diagnosis or without their stressors. It's just about being penalized for seeking treatment. Exactly. Like, you don't want to risk, you know, losing your job or getting put on desk duty for a while because people don't think that you're mentally fit to do the job anymore. Right, which is... Some of my friends have argued that, you know, anyone can get PTSD, but veterans are actually trained to, to deal with it yeah. a little bit better. <laughs> well, along those lines, what do you feel now looking back at your old self when you first got home that you wish you had the language for about what you were going through and what you could have explained to yourself about what that transition's like? What advice would you have given yourself? You know, I wish that, I don't know if someone could have told me but I, I, I wish that veterans even now knew that whatever you're feeling when you come home, whether it's extreme anger, like what I went through, or whether you're sad, or you want to go back, or you're scared, or, you know, whatever, it's not wrong. Like, there's really no wrong way to feel after you get back from being in a war zone. It's just, you know, something that you have to figure out how to deal with, but it doesn't, it doesn't really change who you are as a person at the deepest level. It doesn't mean anything bad about you. It's just something that you need to work through. But it's nothing that you should feel ashamed of. And what advice would you have for somebody who's about to term out of the military and about, say, if they had about a month left on their clock before they rotated? I would say you definitely need to start thinking about what you want to do when you get out of the military. Because I think a lot of the times, and I know I did too, I just like, I just can't wait to get out and not do anything. You know, I just want to like go hang out every day and not have to go to formation or anything like that. But there's only so long that you can do that before you're like, okay, now what am I going to do with the rest of my life? So I think people definitely need to think about, you know, what are they going to do for a career? Are they going to use their GI Bill or cut off all contact with veterans or, you know, whatever, but they need to give it some thought instead of just jumping in feet first and learning as they go. With your experience coming home and as you say in your story, you know, wrestling with your family and wrestling with the fact that you changed, what do you feel that civilians need to understand about the military that they might not, if the only perception they're getting of it is from the news when something really bad happens or from Hollywood and television? Mm -hmm. I think that, um, I think people need to realize that PTSD doesn't always look like they expect it to look. A lot of the times in the movies or even in stories they might have heard, people think of having nightmares or waking up in the middle of the night and grabbing their gun, having flashbacks. And that is definitely something that some veterans will go through. But there are other things you need to look for. Like in my case, people snapping over really silly little things and getting angry over them. Or, you know, just seeing depressed all the time. These are things that you need to look for in veterans when they come back that could be warning signs that you'll probably realize when they're gone, if God forbid they commit suicide. Like, I've had a couple friends that I served with that did do that after they came home. And we never had any idea until it was over that that was coming. And then after it was done, 
we were like, wow, we probably should have seen that. We, we should have known that that was going to happen. So if you see a veteran, whether it's a close friend of yours or a family member or something, and it seems like they're struggling, you know, you need to, you can't make them talk about it if they don't want to, but at least offer that, you know, let them know that you're not judging them, but you're there if they want to talk about it and just let them know that they're not alone in it. Well, Sierra Crane, thanks so much for joining us on Incoming, and we look forward to reading more of what you got to write. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Take care. That's our show. Our guests today were Benjamin Bush and Sierra Crane. Incoming is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Jennifer Corley is our editor. Original music by Chris Warren, Ariana Warren, Chris Apple, Charlie Arbelez, White Visor, and Kevin McLeod. Outro music is by 1032, a.k.a. Tim Koch. At KPBS, John Decker is program director, Nate John is web editor, Emily Jankowski is our technical director, and Kirk Conan is audio engineer. Funding is provided by the KPBS Explorer Program, the Veterans Initiative in the Arts from the California Arts Council, and listeners like you. If you want to learn more and get involved, you can find us at kpbs.org incoming or at incomingradio.org. And you can listen to all of the episodes of Incoming available right now in podcast form on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever fine pods are found. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon. KPBS On Demand is supported by Rancho La Puerta, which provides wellness retreats for solo travelers and families who enjoy hiking, mindfulness, and fitness classes in a garden setting on 4,000 acres of nature preserve. RanchoLaPuerta.com.